This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Samuel called Waiting for the Kingdom. This is the living word of God that searches our hearts. The living word by whom the spirit reveals the son of God to our souls. So with faith and expectancy, let's turn to 1 Samuel. And we are at 1 Samuel 10, verse 17. And we're going to read to the end of the next chapter, to chapter 11. Listen to the word of the Lord. 1 Samuel 10. Verse 17. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God, who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, No. Appoint a king over us. So now, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. When Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. They ran and brought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There was no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, Long live the king! Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some scoundrels said, How can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts. But Saul kept silent. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you, only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen, and he asked, What's wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard their words... The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, 
This is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out together as one. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000, and those of Judah, 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, Say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, By the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. They said to the Ammonites, Tomorrow we will surrender to you, and you can do to us whatever you like. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. The people then said to Samuel, Who was it that asked, Shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so that we may put them to death. But Saul said, No one will be put to death today. For this day the Lord has rescued Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord, and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. This is the word of the Lord. If you were with us for our previous chapter, Saul had been secretly anointed king, been secretly anointed king by the prophet Samuel. He was not expecting this. He was just hunting for some stolen farm animals. But God had a different destiny for Saul. And Samuel meets him outside the city and secretly anoints Saul as king and sends him home to wait. And now the time is ripe, and Samuel summons all of Israel at Mizpah. And Mizpah came up in chapter 7 because that was the very place where the nation of Israel had gathered 20 years before in national repentance and where God had thundered against the Philistines and delivered them by a mighty divine miracle. And here at this very place where the people had received God's gracious, powerful protection, Samuel summons the people to talk about their desire for a king. And Samuel the prophet reports the words of the Lord, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The very words with which the Ten Commandments famously begin. I am your God, I belong to you, and down through the generations and over the centuries, I have rescued you, my people, time and time again. I have saved you from disaster and calamity. I have rescued you from kingdoms and oppressors. But now, you foolish, disobedient, and ungrateful people, you have said, no, we don't want God to be our king. We don't trust him to rescue us time and time again. We want a visible, tangible, human leader instead. But... Despite the sin of the people's desire, God has his own plans. He's not moved by the people, but he moves with the people. And Israel's craving for a human king in the long run is going to bring much misery down on their heads. But in the even longer run, God is going to use this new kingship, to pave the way for true salvation for his people. 
So the people gather, and they're going to find that God is going to be the one who chooses their king. And there's a kind of lottery that takes place. There was something called the Urim and the Thummim. We're not quite sure what these objects were, but they seem to have been these sacred objects used to give yes or no answers. And the people go tribe by tribe, no, 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 until Benjamin, yes, it's the tribe of Benjamin. And then down through the clans until finally it's Saul's name that is marked as the king that God has chosen. And this is news to everybody except for Samuel and Saul. These are the only two men who know exactly what is going to happen. But strangely, Saul is not present at this moment. And the people search, and they can't find this obscure person who has been, whose name has been picked out of the hat. And so they need to inquire further of the Lord, where is this man who has been chosen? And there's a deep irony here, because here the people have rejected God as their king, but yet they can't even find the king without further divine assistance. And God says to them, yeah, your new king has hidden himself among the supplies, among the baggage, probably military gear. So they go down to the train station, they search in the luggage room, and there is Saul squeezing himself between the suitcases. And when this man is pulled out of his hiding place and brought before the people, they realize what an impressive physical specimen he is. Because Saul stands head and shoulders above everybody else. Now, Saul is not the only person in the Old Testament who is described as tall. But he is the only Israelite who is tall. Every other tall person in the Old Testament, and we're going to meet a very tall man in a few chapters are all enemies of Israel, people outside the covenant. But Israel is craving a king just like all the other nations. And when Samuel points him out, the people need no further inquiry, no interview is needed, no questions need to be asked. They all shout as one man, long live the king. This is the guy that we've been waiting for for so long, the one who's going to save us from all our enemies, and bring Israel to a peak of glory and power. This is the man we want. But this kingship is going to happen on God's terms, not Israel's. And so Samuel lays out before the people the rights and duties of the kingship, probably from Deuteronomy chapter 7. And these are deposited before the Lord in the sanctuary along with the other sacred objects because this monarchy is going to be a constitutional monarchy. It's not going to be an unlimited, absolute kingship. Saul has a place in God's economy and it is below God who is the supreme king of Israel. And any true king of God's people must always be one who is subject to to the prophetic voice. And in their reign, 
Saul and every other Israelite king who will follow must ask himself this question. Am I going to represent God's rule or am I going to replace God's rule? To be a true king, you must walk in faith and obedience to God. But there is always going to be the temptation to use human political calculations and not to listen to the voice of God. So here God has raised up Saul. And again and again, there are so many confirmations that Saul is the king that God has chosen. But when God raises someone up as a leader, God also raises up followers. It's pretty hard to be a leader without followers. And there are men gathered here at Mizpah whose hearts God has touched. Mighty men, men of valor, who respond in great faith when they see Saul rise up. And they are willing to leave their own homes and their own families and become the core of Saul's little army. They become his personal bodyguard, and they're going to go back with him to his home in Gibeah. But not everyone at this assembly is filled with faith. There are some, the text describes as scoundrels, worthless men, sons of Belial, literally, who are quite cynical about this Saul fellow. And they muse out loud, how can this man save us? They're not impressed. Israel is in a dire situation, surrounded by enemies, and they look at Saul, this guy who had to be dragged unwilling from the baggage room, and they wonder out loud, can salvation really come through this person? Now, humanly speaking, their doubt is quite understandable. But they're called worthless fellows, scoundrels, because this is an act of distrust, not in Saul, but in the Lord God, who has clearly chosen Saul, anointed him, laid his hand upon him. And so these men are really doubting the kingship of God. But Saul remains silent. He says nothing. And as we find again and again throughout these early chapters, Saul's actions can be interpreted in two different ways. It's kind of ambiguous. Is Saul's silence an expression of his strength, of his character? Or is it his weakness and his unwillingness to deal with difficult problems? And we'll find out how Saul reveals his character. So this assembly has gathered. Saul has been chosen by Lot as the king. And then... Everyone goes home, including Saul. But there are events transpiring outside the borders of Israel. And at this time, Israel is threatened by two enemies, the Philistines in the west and the Ammonites in the east, two strong enemies with vastly superior military technology. And Israel finds it in a situation rather similar to Poland in the 1930s, with Nazi Germany threatening from the West, the Soviet Union looming over them from the East. And both these enemies 
need to be dealt with. First, Saul needs to deal with the Ammonites. Now, there was uh, a text discovered among the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran in 1947 that gives us just slightly more information about what's happening here. And that text, that version of 1 Samuel, describes a campaign of terror that Nahash, the Ammonite king, is waging up and down through the tribes on the east side of the Jordan River, the tribes that are most vulnerable to attack from the east. And Nahash had been conquering city after city and town after town, and to each one he'd been doing the same thing, gouging out their right eyes. This is a cruel, cruel man. And there is a military purpose behind these mutilations that he's performing. Without your right eye, your field of vision is limited, your depth perception is destroyed, and you become hamstrung militarily, especially with operating a bow and arrow. But one eye remains, not out of mercy, but so that his subject people can now act as his slaves, essentially. They still have enough eyesight to plant and reap their crops and to pay tribute, but not enough ever to rise in rebellion against the Ammonites. But it's also psychological warfare. Because Nahash wants to break the spirit of all Israel, to bring shame and disgrace upon the entire nation. And so when the people of Jabesh-Gilead ask for surrender terms, his surrender terms are harsh. He says, you can surrender, you can be my slaves, but here's my condition. The day you do that, your eyes are going to be plucked out. And their desperation, the leaders of Jabesh-Gilead ask for a bit of a reprieve so they can send messengers through the entire land to see if there will be someone who will save them. And King Nahash is so supremely confident in his victory, he grants this request. In fact, he may have thought of it as serving his purpose to humiliate the entire nation. For this news of his impending triumph to spread throughout the land and for the terror of Nahash to fill and cripple the hearts of all Israel. And so the messengers depart. They have a weak to leave and to return, and it seems like they went straight to Gibeah, Saul's hometown. And perhaps the news had not reached Nahash about this new king the Israelites had chosen, or perhaps he was not intimidated, but these men go straight to Saul's village. And when the news of this impending disaster arrives, the people begin to weep. The villagers begin sobbing and crying, and seemingly the men of valor, the men whose hearts God had touched, join them in their despairing wails over the terrible thing that is about to fall on Jabesh-Gilead. Not exactly great faith in King Saul at this point, even among these mighty men. And Saul is a little late to arrive. To our surprise, we find that Saul has not established a palace or a tax system or a standing army or anything we would think of as the trappings of kingship. Saul is still a man with manure on his sandals. 
and he's out in the fields plowing with his oxen. And when he arrives in the village in the evening, he hears the sound of this wailing, and he asks, what on earth is going on? And when the news reaches Saul's ears, the Spirit of God rushes upon him. Saul is angry. He is incensed about this terrible thing the enemies of God plan to do. And here we see Saul at his finest. He's filled with anger, and in this spirit-filled moment, he slaughters his oxen, these prized farm animals. He divides them into pieces, and he sends these pieces throughout the land of Israel with this threat. If you refuse to come out and fight this enemy, I'm going to show up at your farm and destroy your oxen. At this point in Israel's history, the title of king is not enough. The institution is so young that the very words, the legalities are not going to move people. Saul needs to act in charismatic power if he is going to move these people to respond in faith. Throughout the entire period of the judges, No judge was ever able to muster all of Israel to fight. The judges, at their best, were just local leaders who managed to raise up a tribe or two. But throughout the book of Judges, without a king, the nation never acted together. And the first sign of a king is that he is able to act on behalf of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, and assemble the people together to wage holy war. And when this message goes out, the dread of the Lord falls on the people. They are filled with a holy fear, and they sense in Saul's words the voice of the Lord God speaking to them. And they are afraid not to act. They're terrified of Nahash and the Ammonites, but there is a greater terror and a deeper dread that fills them, and that is a dread of the living God himself. The problem in Judges was that Israel was a loose tribal confederacy. Everyone was left to fend for themselves. Why would I bother showing up for this town on the other side of the Jordan River? But now the fear of God fills them, And as one man, this huge army assembles. It's in fact the second greatest army that Israel musters after the Exodus. Now, we have this word translated thousands here. It probably just means companies. The numbers are not exact. But 330 companies of men gather on the side of a mountain slope about 15 miles west of Jabesh Gilead just far enough away that Nahash will not be aware of these forces that are gathering to meet him. The army assembles, 
And the message is dispatched to these beleaguered citizens of Jabesh Gilead. Tomorrow before the sun is hot, you are going to have salvation. And probably in order to lull the besieging enemy into a false sense of security, the people inside the city say, tomorrow at this time, we will come out to you. Not surrender, it says come out, and there's a bit of a humorous play on words. There's a double meaning, and Nahash assumes that they're going to come out to surrender and allow their right eye to be gouged out, but in fact, something else is in the works. The Israelite army marches all night, and they strike somewhere between 2 and 6 o'clock in the morning. They divide into three separate companies, just like Gideon does in the book of Judges. And as the Ammonites are sleeping, slaughter falls on them. The Ammonites are quickly defeated. The army is torn apart, and the siege is lifted on Jabesh Gilead. Victory, relief, salvation has arrived. And at this moment of victory... There are wise political voices whispering in Saul's ear. Saul, this is the time to consolidate power. We need to find out who it was that was whispering those doubts about you, and we need those men to be slaughtered. Now is the moment to act and to really secure your kingship. But Saul refuses to take vengeance. In victory, Saul is quite merciful and magnanimous, in fact. Later on in Saul's story, we'll find that he's not quite so magnanimous. He becomes deeply paranoid and suspicious of anyone he suspects of disloyalty, quite murderous, in fact. But at this moment early in his career, Saul is quite large-hearted, and he says, no, there's going to be no executions today. There's going to be no slaughter because, and it's left to Saul to utter the theological explanation for what has happened, today the Lord has worked salvation for Israel. Today the Lord has worked salvation for Israel. And therefore we're going to respond in grace. This is not a day for dealing with petty personal scores. This is not about King Saul and what he has done, God has visited his people and God has saved us. And here we see, in fact, the amazing grace of God who hears the cries of a people who have rejected him as their king, who want to put their trust in a tangible human leader and who might quite rightly be left to their own devices until they figure things out. But that is not how God treats his people. And he hears the cries of those who are afflicted. And he comes and meets them in salvation through his chosen instrument, Saul. So to wrap things up, Samuel summons the people to a convocation, an assembly at Gilgal. Gilgal is a significant place in the Old Testament because it was the very first place Joshua and the Israelites camped after crossing the Jordan River. And there Joshua had ordered 12 stones to be set up as a memorial of the God who had brought them into the promised land. 
And here at this place, the people are reminded quite visibly that the same God who miraculously brought them into the promised land is going to continually secure them in that land that he has given them. And there Saul is proclaimed as king in the presence of the Lord. It's his coronation, as it were. And the people renew their covenant with God. Because human leaders are going to come and go. But God is always going to remain faithful to his covenant people. Now that's the story of Saul and Jabesh Gilead. But there's something deeper going on in our text. Nahash, the Ammonite king, his name means serpent. Whether it meant that in the Ammonite language, that's what it means in Hebrew. The serpent king. And surely whoever wrote this book and the Israelites who first heard these words read aloud, their minds would have been brought back to Genesis chapter 3 where God proclaims a curse on the serpent who has spoiled the garden for Adam and Eve and led them into temptation. And God makes a promise that one day a seed of the woman is going to arise and though the serpent will crush his heel, this child of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. There is going to be enmity down throughout history between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, between God's people and supernatural, superhuman evil. And we feel the presence of the snake in this story because he's unblinkingly at the frontiers of the people of God, probing constantly for weakness. And he operates a campaign of terror. The enemy is about stealing, killing, destroying, blinding, mutilating, enslaving, bringing shame and disgrace upon the people of God. And the people are helpless against this personification of evil because he's far too powerful and far too cunning for them. And as we see in our story, they need a king that God raises up, upon whom the Spirit of God rests to act in power, to defeat and to crush this serpent. And of course, Saul is only, only offers a temporary reprieve from the forces of evil at Israel's borders. But God, through the story of Saul down through the Old Testament, is paving the way for a true king. A king who will crush the serpent once and for all. The seed of the woman, the son of the virgin, Jesus the Christ, the anointed one. And King Jesus does not rest his claim on his titles, his genealogy, his offices, the institution, Like all true kings, Jesus earns his crown on the battlefield. Jesus wins his throne on the field of battle. 
And like Saul, Jesus, filled with the Spirit, responds in anger, in holy, righteous anger when he hears of the enemy attacking and enslaving the people of God. And he cannot sit by in neutrality, allowing things to happen. He rises up and he goes forward into battle. Jesus Christ is the spirit-empowered, anointed king who goes into battle to win the throne by saving his helpless people from the serpent. That is what Christ has come to do. Jesus is on a campaign of holy war. Because terror must be judged. Terror must be dealt with. And Jesus arrived as the king to bind the strong man, to loot his possessions, to utterly defeat and destroy once and for all the forces of evil. And this King Jesus, the warrior savior king, does by triumphing over evil at the cross. By stripping and disarming the rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame through his death and his resurrection. It's the triumph of Christ. And because of this, Jesus has earned his crown. And God declares him to be the son of God with power. And we gladly bow our knee before King Jesus who has come to rescue us. Let me ask you today, what kind of people are we? Are we the men and women of valor whose hearts God has touched, who respond in faith to follow the king that God has chosen, leaving everything behind? Or are we perhaps more like the scoundrels in the story who wonder quietly or out loud, Can this man save us? Is God really with him? Or are we going to lean on some other tangible, visible human savior to rescue us instead? The good news is that whichever of those categories we find ourselves in today, Jesus is magnanimous in victory doesn't rise from the dead to put doubting Thomas to death, nor has he risen to crush those of us with weak hearts like Thomas. But Jesus shows his greatness in magnanimous mercy. That is what the true king is like, because Jesus ultimately did not come to judge, but to save, not to bring death, but to bring life. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.